Dispatch Publishing presents Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara Jane Naqui. Fifteen. Follow at a distance, Francis. Mita struggles behind sister, consumed by feelings she attempts to hide. Sister pretends no blow has been struck. I've had a while to think on the rejection, and a story is helpful in understanding it. I also want to stave off what is coming at least a moment longer. Our Father in Heaven knows it will arrive soon enough. And so my little parable begins. Once a man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Give me my share of the property. So the father divided his property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son packed up everything he owned and left for a foreign country, where he wasted all his money and wild living. He had spent everything when a bad famine spread through that whole land. Soon he had nothing to eat. He went to work for a man in that country, and the man sent him out to take care of his pigs. He would have been glad to eat what the pigs were eating, but no one gave him a thing. You think you know where this prodigal tale is going, Francis? Think again. Finally, he came to his senses and said, My father's workers have plenty to eat, and here I am, starving to death. I will go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven and against you. But the son never gets around to it. On the way home, he has a windfall, falls back in with the same revelers who helped him squander his inheritance, visits the same prostitute night after night who saps him of will and traps him where he is. The son never bows before his father. The father never embraces his son, Reconciliation never occurs. Imagine how the father feels. The slap of the son's initial insult, asking for the inheritance as if it would be better for the father to fall over dead that instant. And yet, the father hopes one day he will look into the distance and see his son returning home, and he will run to his son and forgive him and welcome him back. But instead of seeing his son cresting a nearby hill, it is but a messenger bearing the worst news. Your beloved son, who you hoped and prayed and dreamt would have a future, is lost. And not just lost, but dead. How would the father feel, I ask you? Fill in the blank. And all because of a damned prostitute. Ah, I see the creases in your brow. It is a difficult relationship Mita and sister share, no? The two are similar magnetic poles, pushing and pulling, wishing to join together, but forced apart by the elemental. So, looking on the likely pair as they hurry to try to find what has become of Pinku and Adiba and Manoj, I have chosen to look at it like so. Maybe... Instead of focusing on sister's inability to extend compassion to Mita, I remember that like the father in our story, sister has a deep well of forgiveness and a desire to love, but also weaknesses, just as we all do.
in reflecting on the rejection, I try to instead focus on the many moments of forbearance preceding and following it, seeing sister as a bereaved mother made to tolerate the presence of the very one she blames for the death of her child. Not so difficult to understand when viewed as, Give me the case, says a voice from beneath an awning. Sister Amita forget themselves for a moment, wondering if this man indeed speaks to them. What is this you're saying? Sister says. Speak up. He steps into the light. He wears a cream-coloured suit, possibly polyester, with penny loafers that match his suit to perfection. His skin is an almond tone of brown, his hair thin. He wields a generous paunch like a wrecking ball. The only extravagance of colour he affords himself is a lively orange shirt and, in the fashion one would expect of his type, wears dark aviator sunglasses with gold rims, gold rings on his fingers and a gold chain about his neck. But I focus on the inconsequential. Sister Amita are concerned only with the man's pistol pointed at them. Despite the rejection, Mita and sister clasp one another. What are you getting at, you gunda? Sister spits. All I have in my case is simple non-things. You want my rosary? M my undergarments? The man gives a sly smile. Yes, you're a fool, a villainer. He takes the case. Just reclaiming what's mine, he says. Before anything can be proclaimed or protested, the man has already sprinted off. I note your shock, Pope, and I feel it too. He's surprisingly nimble for a fatso. Sorry for the lack of warning, Francis, but follow we must. Get back here, sister shouts, but she's lost the race before it starts. Age, that swollen knee, and her accursed, faulty ankle limit her gait to a limp. But not Mita. She screams all the way. Thief! Thief! Catching up to an overweight middle-aged man in penny loafers and a too tight suit is no challenge for her. He wags his gun behind him and Mita trails, trying to dodge its line of sight. Duck under that clothesline, Pope! Dodge that monk! Hurdle that child! What a procession we are! They wind through the narrow alleys of the Tibetan colony, weaving here, turning there, losing themselves among labyrinthine passageways, doubling back, circling round. Ah, indeed, the Gunda, the Gunda, we shall call him in absence of a known name, has paused. He has again come upon Sister Shanti. She gives him a scathing look. This does not impede him. Couldn't you have... Thief! Running there! Done something to stop him? Mita wheezes as she speeds past. Sister lifts her hands to the sky and shrugs. Despite Mita's protestations, no one intervenes. This is because the gunda now waves the gun in front of him. Even a traffic warden springs from his platform and hides, seeing peril bear down on him. It seems the gunda finally has his direction. They're all nearing the main road. If he reaches it unhindered and has a car waiting, Mita realises, he'll never be caught. A hundred million questions crowd Mita's mind. Who is the Gunda? 
Did he have a part in Ram's murder? Was he here with Manoj or looking for Manoj? Why does he want sister's undergarments? Why is she even bothering to help sister? An answer hits her just like the child's errant football that speeds through the air and into her gut. The money. Sorry, miss, calls the kicker as he retrieves his ball. Meeta doubled over, lets out a breathless roar, and the boys at play scurry off. Meeta holds her belly, nurses a side stitch, and watches as the gunda reaches the wide road. Her only consolation is a tiny, small secret. Instead of taking the safe, prudent, wise option of a pedestrian overbridge to make it to the other side of the road and meet his car, the gunda decides to ford the flowing river of cross-traffic with the help of his gun. His attention rightly fixed on approaching cars, he misses the stamp-stamp-stamp of cheap shoe leather, announcing the man barreling towards him from behind. Using his own considerable girth, none other than Adiba flings himself into the gunda and the pair go sprawling to the pavement. Mita whoops with delight. Sister has finally arrived and helps Mita up. They exchange a glance laden with misunderstanding before Mita rushes off to help subdue the gunda. Adiba and the gunda tussle on the hot pavement like large, unwieldy sea mammals on land. Almost comic if there wasn't such danger at hand. The gun explodes and the watching crowd convulses. Everyone ducks. Adiba looks as if he's hit. But no, the bullet was a miss. He merely cups his deafened ear. Somehow in the grappling, the gun has left the gunda's hand and is flung to the pavement. He still clasps the case to his chest. He sees his waiting car and, in a bit of quick mental calculus, reasons that if he is to escape injury or police intervention, he needs to be in that car immediately. He extricates himself from Adiba's bear hug and runs headlong into speeding traffic. Damn all. Mita, sprinting again, pauses at the road. She isn't foolhardy enough to throw herself before that speeding Mahindra Scorpio and risk meeting her end, especially when she knows what is in that case, and especially when she knows what isn't. But Adiba rises. He draws from some previously unseen store of verve to pursue the gunda. Dodge left, Adiba! Dodge right! The gunda weaves and runs as cars hoot their horns and zoom past. But Adiba dashes ahead singularly, not pausing, nor waiting, nor delaying for anything, demanding that for once the world react to him. Oh no, it is upon us. The fateful monkey encounter. I can hardly watch. As Adiba strains to take hold of the gunda's flapping jacket, the motorcycle driver and monkey thwacker arrive. Whether from poor eyesight or a disdain of natural consequences, he literally runs into the running pair. The gunda turns and the case flies from his hand. The motorcycle driver remains on his bike while his passenger monkey catapults into the air only to land with surprising grace. But Adiba is down. Pinku is reunited with sister and Mita now and all shout in horror, hands held to foreheads before rushing into traffic together. 
With his monkey now dutifully returned to his perch on the back of the bike, the driver can see no benefit in remaining at the scene. After all, was it his fault two idiots were dashing through the middle of the road? Agents of fate, away he and his monkey go, straight out of our story. The gunda, though stunned, has a similar inclination. He scrambles to retrieve the case, then stumbles into his car. Away he goes, unfortunately to remain at the heart of our story. As the trio reach Adiba, they see he is unmoving. They check to see if he breathes, if his pulse signals life. They try to goad him back to consciousness. He is, in fact, dead. They stand over the body for some time, entangled in knots of emotion. He was an oaf, a sometimes brutal degenerate who had wasted almost all his time on the earth. But in this final moment of reckless bravery, all would agree that he acquitted himself well and showed the possibility of a different, better, glorious man. What might have been if this new Adiba, not bound by a fascist mother's edicts, but animated by purpose and concern, not for himself, had continued to live? Would he resort to his old ways or choose a different course? Would he have finally conquered his dandruff and body odour? Only God can know. Only God can know. Sister curses her suitcase, bends over Adiba and prays for his soul. All this stupidity over money and her few personal effects. Because of her insistence to defy the odds and discover what befell Ram, another man is dead. There is, there are, there. I can't. I can't do it, Francis. Recounting these events has spent me. I must lay down my typewriter. Besides, I hear the bell ring, calling me to evening Compline. I will take it all up again tomorrow. Sixteen It was a blow to the head, sister tells Jinnah. Adiba fell pursuing a villain. Jinnah has already taken a seat. She was hanging colourful streamers with the girls in preparation for a party as sister Amita arrived back at number 201. Jina does not speak. Rifat silences the radio, Kajra Re coming to an abrupt halt. And it is my fault, sister says. All stand silently. Sister remains stoic, having been the bearer of bad news many times before. All watch Jinna while she remains fixated on a window looking outside. It is as if the old woman has become allergic to breathing. The streamers in her hands crinkle. She finally stands up and looks sister in the eye, and sister braces for a blast of invective. The mother, the mother no more, begins to weep, to howl, to shake. She clings to sister and sister's arms rise to comfort her. The others stand dumbstruck. Mita sheds no tears. She has borne Adiba's blows and will never forget them. His death is only another postponement. Soon there will be work again, 
sweaty men with grotesque thoughts who press against her, into her. Mita slips away to her room, while the other girls, all move to varying degrees, lay their hands on Jinnah as she falls to her knees and weeps. Follow Mita to her room, Francis. Crack the door just so, and peek in. She quietly packs her things into her oversized purse. She pulls her most favourite poster from the wall and folds it until it slides in easily. She reaches far beneath her bed and removes a hand-held, opaque plastic case, a gift from Ram. She is most wary about what it contains and slides it to the bottom of her bag. I'm sure you have guessed what she is doing, and you are correct, Pope. Sister opens the door and Mita gives a start. She glares at Sister. I am going to the morgue with Jinnah. When I return, we go immediately to the Muslim quarter. Mita nods, all the while repeating to herself, If I'm still here, if I'm still here, if I'm still here. In 1960, in her 21st year, Hira received a note. She found it tucked in the pages of her sheet music after a lesson, scrawled on a misplaced sheaf of Elga's Salut d'Amour. Receiving a note wasn't a surprise, but this one was written in the minutes between playing the final piece, her fetching tea, and Walter's departure. Its contents stopped her cold. The young American had taken the preeminent place in her mind and heart, displacing music, service, studies, Mother Teresa, friends, gods and parents. His auburn hair, his gentle instruction, his foreign allure. She worried at first, but it was clear her growing feelings for him were by no means unrequited. He had taken to her keen mind and subtle beauty and remarkable talent. It became a question of finding space to explore their attraction. With every moment of their relationship all but chaperoned, they had lived within others' constraints these past months. Moments were stolen between pieces or when mummy left the room and they joked like schoolchildren. The relationship's strangeness made it enthralling. What were the rules? Who knew? Every secret felt like a delicious transgression, the sort of disobedience that Hira had indulged in little over her short life. She spent those days of infatuation in a heady blur, wondering what her life ought to be. The paths were clearly delineated and remarkably different. She loved her music and doubted it would carry her far. And what of her legal studies? Were they only to achieve a university degree and net an older husband with a large bank balance and undoubtedly large waistline? Would she even have the chance to apply what she worked so hard to learn? And would the piano, this instrument that meant all the more to her under Walter's instruction, be relegated to a corner of her life, only to be trotted out after dessert for guests' enjoyment? And then... Almost an afterthought were the missionaries of charity. Sister Angelique had paved the way, and Hira had talked via a very expensive call with one of the MCs in Calcutta. She was invited to participate in an aspirancy to take place next week, 
sandwiched in the summer months between academic terms. It would be a chance to taste the religious life. Would she like, as Mother Teresa had put it, to come and see? But that seemed an impossibility. Maybe next time, Hera thought, doubting her conviction. Typical Indian domesticity. Life in another culture. Devoted service to the poor. Hera had a decision to make. That much was clear. And suddenly, the contents of Walter's note put her choices in sharper relief. 6 a.m. this Saturday. New Delhi Railway Station. Secret destination. Back on Sunday. Tell your parents a story. The ensuing hours are long. The girls have retired to their mats. Activity on GB Road buzzes. They hear feet on the stairs, knocking at the barred door. Customers finally giving up. The sounds fade. The other girls chat a little. Their thoughts naturally turn to escape. Why don't they run? The answers? No money. No family. Homes an impossible distance away. Their fears outbalance their courage. Meeta is meanwhile caught up in a world of her own. Sister is worse than Jinnah, telling me what to do, where to go. So much judgment I receive. So cruel. He chose me, fell in love with me. What did I do? Fell in love in return and hoped to run away. What falter this is mine. And telling that drug dealer he is loved while treating me like a soiled rag to be wrung out after wiping up filth and being thrown away. But then there are thoughts about Ram and the mounting lies she tries feebly to ignore. Living in some dirty chawl, wrapped up in selling drugs, barely even educated, enticing her to run off with money stolen from evil men. She glances at her purse. The opaque case at the bottom of her bag shouts silent accusations. She is burdened, regrets what she's done, has no way to confess it. If she doesn't run now, she'll be found out. What then? When she hears the key turning in the lock, she curses. She may have missed her chance. Mita peeks out of her room. In staggers Jinnah, aged a decade in an afternoon. The other girls rise and hover around anxiously to meet her. Jina walks to Rifat, Deepti and Anu in turn. She hugs them. She steps slowly down the hall until she arrives before Mita. Mita can hardly look her in the eye, knowing she must blame her for Adiba's death. Jina offers Mita a silent embrace as well. Peer inside Jina and analyse the machine's inner workings. She is a pimp. She operates a brothel. She is afraid and ashamed. Family ties have been cut. She has no one to turn to but the women whose bodies she exploits. Without another word, the old woman lies down in Adiba's room. Anu takes some dal roti from over the dying stove and puts it beside Jinnah closing the door behind her. The burdened soul is a heavy thing. Sister finally appears, finding Mita in their shared room sitting cross-legged. This has been a difficult day, Sister says. Well, 
let's be off. I can't continue. That sister is willing to head back out the door and Mita is willing to quit their investigation shocks the other. They stare at each other for a moment. I've been thinking, Mita says, about all of this. I'm leaving while I can. Sister sits herself down, mulling it over. Of course. Her words ring with disappointment. Finally, but you love Ram, don't you? I do. I did. He lied to me, and you've lied to me, she almost says. I can understand, but he's killer. Can't you remain just a while more? We've lost so much for this to add up to nothing. Their eyes lock. Sister looks away. Of course, I can't ask that of you. I have no right. Mita notes sister's hands, tensing. Can you hand me that envelope? Sister finally says, signalling toward her altar. Mita obliges. Sister extracts the simple letter and hands it to Mita. I know you can't read it, but you should know. I need someone to know. Just a few ounces, and yet... Mita turns it over in her hands. It's just... I'm... confused right now. This moment hardly knowing what is up and what is down. I asked for permission a few months ago for a pause, a time to leave my community and reflect, a period called exclustration. If I am honest with myself, if I do as believe I ought, it would be a final break. Exclustration. Mita parrots slowly, still holding the letter carefully in her hands. What is it? It would mean the end. The end of my vows. Mita is still confused. My request was refused. On the superior general's recommendation, I received this news at nearly the exact moment I learnt of Ram's expiry. Mita thinks she understands. You said earlier you've left for just a few days, that yours is a small disobedience, but you've run away for good? You're taking off your... She hovers her hand over her head. Sari? Unpinning that little man on your shoulder? Her eyes narrow. Why? It's most complicated. I don't know that I'm having time to go into it with you. Mita hears the slant of the words and darkens. Sister grows distant, and her gaze rests on her reflection in the mirror on the wall. She wears a look of surprise, maybe at how gaunt she is, how aged she's become. Sister's body contorts. This pain, Mita, if not for Ram's death, I would have accepted the letter and the decision. I would have. But something, something has changed. Mita's hand involuntarily slips to her purse. She lets out a throaty, disbelieving laugh. It cuts, sister, as intended. I see. You think your leaving is somehow like mine? From what I know, you escape a place where you float around, serve others, sit and talk to your god. 
eat enough food, drink enough water, have a place to sleep and never, never experience what it's like to take a man you don't want. You're terrified when a couple of white-dressed women, your sisters, you even call them, pursue you on the street? Will the bearded man stuck to a cross come hunt you down in your disobedience? Sister says nothing, does nothing. You know what happens if I run? Hadib is gone, but there's an army of pinkos out there who, for a few rupees, will chase me down and hand me back over to Jinnah, bloodied and raped. And she will beat me, starve me, lock me away. My family would do the same. How, how can you put these sufferings side by side with yours? I suppose I can't, sister finally whispers. Mita feels a new satisfaction. She stands and draws her purse to her. I need you, sister blurts out, her whole effect changed. Don't leave me, please, not yet. I must make two other visits before the day is done, and I don't, I don't know if I can alone. She holds out a shaking hand, grasping for Mita, and appears just as shocked by the gesture as Mita is. Jinnah is in deep grief, sister says. Whether you escape tonight or tomorrow, it will make no difference. You all will be free, and I'll help make sure of it. I promise. Mita feels something new, an unlikely compassion crawling up the walls of her heart. She sees sister, her tired soul in fragile form. Poured out are the precise words that rattle around Mita's head. Come, she says to sister. Eat something to give you strength, and then we go. Two more visits. I can at least do that. Sister brightens slightly. But then, no matter what, I leave all this behind, Mita says. Seventeen. I see you looking about, Francis, relieved at the sight of the familiar. That's right. We've returned to Shah Jahanabad, the old city, and are nearing the heart of the Muslim quarter where our story with Ram began. Look just now. The likely pair appears. Sister told Mita that the Australian idiot sparked a thought that an old vendor in the Muslim quarter may have some further information. No problem, Mita had replied. So why does Mita walk five paces ahead of sister, barreling through a children's cricket practice and cursing them when they protest? It is because the second visit has just been disclosed. It is to none other than Constable Singh. We'll need his help if the first meeting goes as I hope. Sister explained. He'll know you lied about the deputy commissioner if you go to him. Sister shrugs. I'll find another way to scare him. But, Mita, I know he has wronged you and done evil and that he is not to be trusted. It's all plain as day to me. Please, give me your trust. Mita rolls her eyes. And what about the fat thief? What if he's on our trail? He wanted the money that Ram and Manoj took from him, nothing more. He will be satisfied with the case he stole and its contents. Mita hugs her purse a little closer. Of course, he'll be satisfied. 
they talk little the rest of the way. Sister turns her gaze. Obscene traffic sees them pause and chart a course among the dented, dilapidated cars. Furious drivers curse and shake their heads and make obscene gestures out of their windows in signs of frustration. Her eyes follow a line of worshippers carrying marigolds and coconuts and ghee who step into a blue-painted mandir to make offerings and receive blessings from Krishna. At the same time, the call to prayer erupts all over the city with an especially loud blast coming from the direction of the enormous domes of the Jama Masjid, Delhi's triumphant mosque. She turns away, repelled. Owing to the practice of a religion not her own, you ask? No. Any example of religious devotion is enough to inspire fresh guilt. Though still clothed in her white and blue sari, it is only due to habit and the fact she doesn't have a thing to change into. The sari is a mess from car exhaust, scuffed knees and prodigious sweat stains. She would have to borrow something soon, likely from Jinnah. It would be the first time in decades not wearing a nun's dress. She had tried to buffer thoughts of what comes next, but she finds them breaking through her defences. Tomorrow looms large. Where will she go? There are distant family members' sister could impose upon for a bit of financial support. Her parents' old bungalow is, remarkably, in her name, passed to her in the absence of a will, and she has never gone to the trouble of disposing of it, even though title to personal property is not allowed by the MCs. There are likely tenants to be dealt with. She skips a breath, fearing the reactions of distant nephews and nieces if she were to attempt to claim the old home and displace them. This is what a Hindu who leaves Hinduism looks like, they would say to her, sneers on their faces. She can scarcely imagine what shape life will take after the MCs. To have so many hours of the day available to oneself, to do what one pleases, when one pleases, as one pleases. Will she still serve others? Remain in the poverty to which she is accustomed? Or cast it all off? Will she be lonely beyond all reckoning, shrivel away to nothing? She glances at Mita, who still walks ahead, pouting. Like the girl, sister suspects, she finds herself on the cusp of unknowing, terrified by what it all means. Back to the here now. Sister worries that their first intended visit may be amiss if Mr. Shaji is truly the business owner he purported to be. As they take another elbow turn, Sister is reassured to see his Mercedes parked in the middle of the lane, making all passers-by and motorcycles and goats move to one side or the other. This is our place, Sister says. Mita assesses the street with her arms crossed. As she walks past, Sister looks in the tea shop, searching for the small boy who had brought her her chai and a cryptic message. The shop bustles and the chaiwala doesn't notice her, at least not at first. He avoids her stare. A few feet off from the antique shop, Sister pauses and exhales, looking skyward. Anxious? Mita asks. Sister turns her head. 
accusations are difficult things to make. Mita wonders at this. What shall I do? Wait outside? Keep watch? A new thought dawns on sister. Look upset. She commands Mita. Yes, gruff. Sister pulls at strands of the girl's hair to make her seem unkept. You shall be a dissatisfied customer. I will do all the talking. Remember the love letter? The one we found written to Manoj? You are the woman who wrote it. She is your part to play. Be an angry lover? Not a problem, Mita says glumly. Good girl, follow my lead, sister says, giving a wink. And she steps forward, her jaw set and fists clenched at her sides. Mr. Shaji, seated, has no chance to speak before sister opens up with a barrage. You lied to me about your business relationship with Ram Kumar and sent me on a fool's errand across all of Delhi because of some story you concocted about him being a delivery boy. But I know better now that your antiquities are just a front. And whether you have software this or pharmaceutical that, I don't even care. Because what I do know is that you're moving drugs about this city. And I even have one of your customers to prove it. She snaps at Mita, a signal. Mita gives a stern-faced nod. And if you don't tell me what I want to know this very minute, I will share all with my police contacts, including the deputy commissioner of police, who is a close personal friend and would like nothing better than to lock up a drug trafficker. And all I want and need is one address. One simple address to find Manoj, who killed my Ram, and your problems with me and us will disappear and we will never see each other again. Whew. Mr. Shaji is stunned first, then saddened. Namaskar, Sister Shanti. Good to see you again, Mr. Shaji says coolly. Have a seat. Sister sits, crossing her arms. Another chair for the young lady? Mr. Shaji asks. My name is Meeta and I'll stand, thank you. All three look at each other for nearly a minute while Mr. Shaji reflects. I don't like being bossed about, he says. Sister grimaces. Another man died because of this foolish misdirection of yours. Today, this very afternoon, I consider you having a hand in his death. If you had not been dishonest, I might have found Manoj sooner and prevented this mess. Nonsense, that is. I... Sister protests. He holds up a hand to silence her. It's you driving after all this, stirring up trouble, feeding beef to Hindus. None of this would have happened without you, so blame yourself. Meeta looks at Sister. She is quiet, introspective. Her eyes are fixed on the floor. It is not Adiba she thinks of, Mita realises. Sister is tracing lines of causation with Ram further back. What mistake of sisters might have set Ram on the path he travelled? I see this is about something else, Mr. Shaji says. You feel I corrupted Ram? I did nothing of the sort. The boy was already defective when he arrived. There was no manipulation here, no temptation. Delhi is a hard city and India is a hard country. 
were trying to find ways to escape its difficulties and my antiquities. It takes me to a moment to realize he means drugs. Help my customers. Of course, I don't touch what I sell. Drugs are having no place in my home. But I don't blame those who resort to them. There is no disagreement from Meeta or sister on the difficulty of life in Delhi. Mr. Shaji mutters under his breath, shifts in his wicker seat. Believe at least one thing I told you about Ram. I like the boy and I'm sad to hear he's gone. I liked Manoj too. But Ram and he left my employ a while ago. Manoj has not made deliveries for me for some time. He was delving into some other trade, something more lucrative, more dangerous. He wanted out. I let him go. You seem very reasonable, sister says, under her breath, almost regretfully. She had been ready for a fight, which Mr. Shaji declined. He shrugs. We all want villains to hate. I cannot excuse myself nor take full responsibility. Each of us is a ball. He looks up and into the open air, as if seeing the image he describes, plinking off one another. None of us knows where we'll fall. Help us then, Mita says. Who are you again? Mita sees no reason to lie. I was with Ram, his fiancée. Mr. Shaji nods. And how would I help you? Meeta pauses open-mouthed. She doesn't know. Sister takes her cue. When I searched Ram's flat, the one he shared with Manoj, letters turned up for Manoj, in English, florid language, written in a convent school hand. I've been asking myself, who could this boy have known who could write such a thing? It was Mr. Bogan who helped put the pieces together. Rolling his eyes, Mr. Shaji blurts, That idiot. Yes, that idiot made me realize your part in this. Customers contact you discreetly. Your errand boys buy and sell in your name. We just missed Manoj as he was buying from Mr. Bogan. But for whom? Not for himself. It dawned on me, the woman who wrote that letter, a lover, though I have my suspicions about the nature of their relationship. I need to find her. Meeta's mouth gapes. She saw none of these connections, not one. Sister continues, As you said, this antiquities trade is your side business. You know who your customers are. And a businessman such as yourself will keep records. Mr. Shaji smiles. You think I would write all of this information down? Make it so easy for the police to clap handcuffs on me? I'm sure some third-rate copper or tin pitches are passed around with your drug orders inside. You're not stupid. You have high-end clientele, others who have money like yourself. They're your friends, friends of friends. I arrive at my point. I believe you know exactly who wrote that letter to Manoj. Which woman would carry on with such hanky-panky with a young delivery boy? And who would be willing to help him, even if wanted for murder? Your ledger in the corner there would be having her exact address, no? 
There are hundreds of customers in there. I don't interact with them at all after initial contact. It's the couriers who meet. My dear, a one-time offer. Give me the address of the author of these letters. We will not disclose the source of the information to anyone. Right, Mita? A nod. He glowers but reaches for his ledger. You think I'm doing this for you, but be not mistaken. It's for Ram. Even if it's Manoj who did the thing, I'm willing to send him away to prison. He flips open the ledger, lifts his glasses to his face. He sweeps a gnarled index finger over the names inside until it stops. I tell the boys never to indulge the clients. Many of the buyers are lonely sorts. Too much money, too few friends. But these boys are masters of the hustle. Good salesmen. They see opportunities and exploit them. Mr. Shaji withdraws a pen and a scrap of paper from a small drawer and writes. Sister takes the scrap and reads. Sharmila G. 25 Falodi Kalam Mark, Chattarpur. I would have thought this would be closer. One of the bungalows in the cantonment or what not. Not out near. Are we in Gurgaon? Not quite. It's our farmhouse. Sister hands the slip to Mita to read, forgetting Mita is illiterate. Mita nods solemnly for Mr. Shaji's sake. One final question. When they left your service... What work did Ram and Manoj take up? Mr. Shaji thinks upon his answer. I truly don't know, but I didn't tell you something the last time you were here. I have no reason to hide it anymore. The day Ram died, he came to me, asked me for protection, told me he was running, hoped I would smooth things over with those he'd wronged. Sister braces herself on Mita, who braces herself on a decorative spittoon. I wasn't having it. I said his mess was his mess, not my concern. Sometimes young men need love that feels like disciplined and... Mr. Shaji chokes on his words. Hoo-hoo, sister stutters. Did he wrong? I haven't a clue. I refuse to listen. He sighs. His phone vibrates, but he lets it ring and ring and ring. I'm sorry another man died today. This work has its unsavory side, most unsavory. Then cease it. Why continue when you have reputable businesses to run? He cocks his head, eyes squinting, his expression turned, patronizing. A reputable business. This is India, sister. <laughs> Sister has no desire to argue. Come, Mita. We have what we need. God bless you and your family, she says to Mr. Shaji. As she steps down into the street, she mutters, But not your trade. Look at those two natter, Francis. Not five meters away, and they can hardly hold in their excitement at the address in hand. A small victory in a day of defeats. They even walk arm in arm for a moment before they remember themselves and the inconsistent rift between them. We'll wait for tomorrow. 
My hope is Constable Singh will see the wisdom of aiding us. Meet the clouds at the mention of Singh. Though she's reluctant to cross him again, she will defer to sister. There is a tug on her arm from behind. Once turned, she finds no one until she looks down. Before her stands a small, ugly boy with unkept hair and a strange lip. I can help you, he says to the pair. Sister peering around Meeta's side recognises him as the tea-stall boy. She leans forward. What's your name, my dear? Mohsin, he says timidly. He looks away from Meeta. He's made bashful by her beauty. Look here, Mohsin, I remember you. A few days ago I saw you. He nods, signals for her to bend over. He whispers in her ear. A secret, is it? He nods. And you will tell me? The boy looks again at Meeta, who tries to contain a smile. Tongue-tied, I see, sister says. He nods again. The boy starts to share, his words coming in a trickle before they gush. Meeta sees sister's countenance darken until her lips form a fine line. She turns and throws a furious look at the tea shop. Finally, Mohsin finishes his story. Sister rises. What? Mita asks. Take us, Mohsin. What is it? But sister ignores her questioning. She takes the boy's hand and they set off together. Mita stamps her foot, refusing to follow until she can no longer resist. She takes off in hurried pursuit. Step to it, Francis. Today has been long. Watch out for that bullock cart. But we have made great progress. Excuse us, sir, could you move your cow? And if I remember correctly, rest for the likely pair is not so very far off. How dare you cut off the Pope? These streets are pandemonium. So many close calls close together. Hardly any of the day's waning light reaches into the crevice of an alley into which Mohsin leads us. At last, we've arrived. It looks like he is stopping in front of a... a plank. A large sheet of wood leaning against a wall. I worry this boy may be short a gulab jamun or two. He's signalling to sister to help him shift the wood, but carefully as to avoid making a sound. Mita, still floating in her own world of personal slights and indignities, stands to the side. I see. It is not so much the sheet of wood Mohsin has guided us to, but what lies behind it. There is a grate, and they have shifted it just enough to spy inside. A cacophony comes from within, like a horde of locusts, stopping and starting, starting and stopping. Sister gives a restrained sigh. Mita cannot contain her curiosity. She parts sister and the boy to see herself. There is one faint light, and the figures inside move like indistinct shadows, hunched over sewing machines. Mita is unimpressed. She whispers in sister's ear, What is it? Just people working, no? Sister looks at her with annoyance and puts a comforting arm around the boy. Mita strains to hear what sister says to him, but the noise inside overpowers it. Reaching the limit of her patience, Mita grabs the boy and pulls him aside. 
Tell me what you told her, she snaps. Sister interposes herself, supreme displeasure rippling on her face. Meetal, you leave him be. Well, what is it? All of this here and there and secrets no one tells me. Sister pulls Meeta to the side while Mohsin gravitates back towards the grate to watch. I'm not sure what to make of it. Not just yet, Sister says. But this boy, he doesn't speak so very well and it's all coming out most confusing. I think he's telling me that Ram brought him here. What? From where? Is he confused? Does he mean Manoj? Sister holds up a hand to damn the torrent of questions. He says he's from a village called Nadiami. I asked him where that is. Bihar, he said. He's been in Delhi not so very long. And I think he does know Ram. He listened into my conversation the other day with Shaji. That's when I first saw Mohsin, when he brought us tea. He described seeing Ram again the night he died. He remembered because his favourite programme was on the TV. Three nights ago. Mohsin says he knows these people at work inside this room. Somewhere on the truck with him. And that Ram and a man who looked like him were the drivers and put them in the truck. Ram delivered him personally to the tea shop. Meeta plunges back into her own memory. She can picture how it went, not from the clarity of the retelling, but because the same remembrances rest within her. Money changing hands, men with wide smiles and assurances, quick goodbyes, confusion for the small girl caught in the middle of it all. Acha. With Meeta rendered speechless, Sister speaks. These people have been tricked and sold. They are like slaves, and Ram and Manoj were not just party to it, but responsible. The likely pair turned to look at the small boy who was lost and alone, perched before the grate and fixated on the shadows of the people trapped just behind. This has been a Dispatch Publishing production of Little Flower, written by Ted Oswald and performed by Zara J. Nakui. Text copyright 2017 by Ted Oswald. Music by Kevin MacLeod, used by permission. If you have enjoyed this production, please consider rating and reviewing this audiobook at audible.com and on goodreads.com.